You know, baptism has been a part of the life of the church from its very first moments. We we have, as a church family, been making our way through the dramatic account of the early church. It's recorded in the book of Acts. And this morning, for just a few minutes, I want to take you back to that first moment, those first excited days. In Acts chapter 2, when when the Spirit of God came upon his people in power and they responded in ways that, that were unparalleled in the life of the world. And part of that response was baptism. The gospel begins not necessarily with, with news that sounds like it's resounding joy, but it begins realistically with an appraisal of how the world really is. Gospel truth is sober truth. It's, it's honest truth. It's real truth. It doesn't try to look at the world and pretend that, that bad things are good and that bleak things are rosy. Baptism is a way of reminding us that, that there is something that's left behind so that something bright and new can begin. The gospel is objective. It's reality-based. It's accurate in its assessment of our lives. And nowhere is this more important than, than when you step into the realm of spiritual life, of, of moral character, when it comes to the state of the heart. And there are a few places in our lives where we're more capable of a kind of self-deception than there. How much duplicity is there in my life? How much deceit still gets past my lips? How much sheer, unadulterated selfishness still breathes through my life? Boy, those are hard questions. And those are not the kind of questions that we like to raise in public conversation. They're certainly not the kind of questions we like to address with frequency in the life of the church. And yet those are exactly the kind of questions that bring people here into the baptistry. We are in the presence of a loving but just and holy and truth-telling and perfect God. And a realistic encounter with God who is all of those things will inevitably bring people here. One of the words that that used to be part of the life of the church that, that generally has been tossed out is the word sinner or sin. Because we have this sort of feeling that if we use that word in describing somebody, it will hurt their feelings. I've not found a person yet, though, who's willing to say that at some point in their life or at some moment in their experience, that's not a word that couldn't fit. So the gospel begins in this sober place of realism. All have sinned, it says, and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where it begins. Now, fortunately, that's not where it ends, but that's the standard. That's the benchmark. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. That's that's why you were created. That's the purpose and design of your life. You are made to reflect the glorious goodness of God. 
And yet something got in the way. And getting it out of the way is the most marvelous, life-changing experience that a human being is afforded. That's what gets brought here into the baptistry. Now, after Jesus had been crucified, after he was raised from the dead, after he ascended to be with God at his right hand, it says the Holy Spirit descended into the life of his followers and came with great power. This all happened. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. It happened on a day that we recognize now as, as Pentecost. Thousands of Jewish believers had traveled from all over the Mediterranean world. They were gathering in Jerusalem and they see this strange phenomenon in the life of this small group of, of followers of a crucified Messiah. They didn't know what to make of it. And they're starting to murmur a little bit. They're wondering what's going on. In the middle of all the chaos, the Apostle Peter stands up and he gives the very first Christian sermon of all the millions of sermons that will be preached for the next 2,000 years. This is the first. And here's the Coles Notes version. There's never been a man like Jesus. Nobody ever understood God like Jesus. Nobody ever understood life like Jesus. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. Nobody ever healed and manifested power like Jesus. No one ever died like Jesus. And no one has ever resurrected, triumphed over death like Jesus. And here's the climax of the sermon. Peter looks out at his audience and he says with boldness, therefore, let all Israel, let all of you know, be assured of this, that this man whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, leader and redeemer. Now, it's hard to imagine, at least for me, the kind of raw courage it must have taken to do that. I'm not inclined to be one to stand up in front of crowds at all. But to stand before a crowd and say, this Jesus whom you crucified. Remember, this, this is not a crowd of slackers. These are people who had sacrificed their time and their money, had set aside their schedule to travel from all over the world in order to come to Jerusalem for this religious service, to worship God, to show their devotion. Compared to many others in the world, this was the spiritual elite. This was the moral upper crust. And Peter stands in front of them and says, your actions, your lives are what led to the crucifixion of the best man that we ever knew. You kind of expect them to turn on him at that point. Things could get ugly. But they don't. Because I think the same spirit that was working powerfully in the lives of Jesus' followers was also working in the crowds. And this is their response. When people heard this, Acts 2, verse 37, if you're following, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, tell us what should we do? What's going on? Jesus had said to his people that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's, he's going to fill them with power. But there's going to be some particular things that the Holy Spirit does. Chief among them is this. The Spirit is going to convict them of sin. And so using that, that politically incorrect, seldom used word, I want to talk just for a couple of minutes 
about the conviction of sin and about why it inevitably leads here. Conviction of sin is, I think it's a deeply misunderstood idea. Uh, sometimes because the church has used it in terribly inappropriate ways, like a hammer to pound people into religious submission. Conviction of sin is not doing something wrong and feeling bad about it. That's not conviction of sin. Sometimes people get caught up in something and, and then someone else finds out. Maybe it's just one person, a spouse, but that's bad enough. Maybe they get caught and it makes national headlines. And how much over the past three, six months have we watched people get caught in wrongdoing in Hollywood, in Washington, in Toronto, in Ottawa, in the corridors of political and financial power? They got caught. And it makes headlines. And I'm sure that there is great pain for the victims, for the family of the accused, for the accused themselves. That is not conviction of sin. That's embarrassment over getting caught. And what you've really lost at that point is your reputation. Maybe you've lost your job. And you wish somehow there were some way to recork the bottle, to put it back the way that it was before. Conviction of sin is not the same as embarrassment over consequences. This too, conviction of sin, is not the same as the fear of punishment. We did this at the 9 o'clock service, so let me try it here. Have any of you, be honest, ever been driving along the road, and then you looked into the rearview mirror, and there they were, the red and blue lights, right? And that deep Rochelle, never, never. <laughs> Everyone else but Rochelle... Mass confession time. You know, in that moment, that just aching feeling, what am I in for now? And you pull over, and in leans the constable, and they ask you the stupidest question. Do you know why I pulled you over? And they sneer at you. Conviction of sin is not the same as being embarrassed that you get caught, and it's not the same as fear over punishment. How big is the fine going to be? How many demerit points? Conviction of sin is this. It's when you catch a glimpse of what you're really capable of. That's conviction. How did I become the kind of man who could do that? How did I become the kind of man who cheats on tests or on taxes? How did I become the kind of person who tells lies to get what I want? The kind of person who's cowardly about what I should say? The kind of person who wounds the people that I say I love? How did I become the kind of person who can be so self-absorbed in the face of crying human needs and people who are starving to death every day? Conviction of sin is when you come face to face with the reality of who you are and what you're capable of. And that, that slays you. That cuts you to the heart. And that is a painful thing. But, but it's not just a painful thing. And this is why I think that the church, the church needs not to give up on this. They need to do it with a gentleness and a mercy. But, 
They need to keep talking because I think that the conviction of sin is the most wonderful thing that God can give to human beings. Because it's the awareness of what's noble and true. I mean, guilt can be neurotic and it can be distorted. It can be all mangled up. But the capacity to recognize truth is the most glorious thing about human beings. And when you lose it, I think that's the loss of our humanity. So the people cried out on that day long ago, day one of the church, what should we do? And here's Peter's response. Repent. Single word. Just means turn things around. Not too late. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins can be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, part, part of why we talk about the work of God in our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit, is that without it, we can't even see what's gone wrong. Now, that's the nature of self-deception. We can't even see the areas in which we're deceiving ourselves. It's kind of like, well, listen, today's an atypical day, but usually during the winter... Not only is it cold, but our our roads are just a dismal mess of salt and slush and sand. And, and I made the mistake of buying a black vehicle. And it hasn't been black since about October. It's that crusty white color that gets all over the doors and the and the uh, the hood. And, and especially, it gets on the windshield. Now, you don't notice it when you're driving at night. At least this is my extensive research. You don't notice it when you're driving at night. You can see through pretty well. But boy, if you've got that and you're still driving at dawn when the sun comes up, it's it's almost like somebody has dropped a wall. You can't see at all. And you have two choices living in Canada. You can decide that you'll bite the bullet and you'll wash your windshield. You'll get it cleaned. Or you can decide I'm only going to drive at night until the spring comes. Let me read to you a marvelous word of Scripture from the Gospel of John in chapter 3. This is the verdict John wrote. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light. Why? Because their hearts were evil. I mean, of course we do. Of course we do. We'd rather just bite the bullet and drive at night than do the hard work of getting things cleansed. And so we we conspire with each other to, to keep our lives secret, to not talk about the things that have gone wrong. We value privacy above all else so that nobody finds out. That same dynamic that's at work in me might be at work at you. Money and and greed, and impurity, and gossip, and judgment, and bitterness, and ego, and whatever it is. It's so, it's so deep that I can't even see all of it. I get lost in the dark. But I never stop thinking about the reality of it. And what it looks like in the light of day. In the eyes of a holy and perfect, a truth-telling, good, and merciful God. And then one day, God comes to work on me, in my life, in yours. Blazing light. 
And suddenly you can't ignore it. And you see the truth. And it's painful. But the pain isn't just about other people knowing. Because that's not going to last. They'll forget eventually. The pain isn't just about consequences. Because there might be some, but that's not the biggest deal. The pain is about me. How did I become that kind of person? It's about my brokenness. And Peter says, repent. Repent. It's the word of the day. It's the word for this pool. God, forgive me of my sin. Send me as much light as I can stand. Cleanse the, cleanse the windshield so that I can really see. Cleanse me of everything that, that needs to be cleansed. And folks, in the life of the church, that is never, that is never a thing of despair. And that's probably where we've made the biggest mistake in using the language of sin. Is that we've spoken it in anger and sometimes in futility. You need to speak it in hope, with reverence. Because there's a God who loves to forgive. No child of God has ever wanted so far away that when they turn around, when they repent, that there isn't a God, their arms outstretched, saying, yeah, come on home. Come on back home. For those who come to the baptistry in repentance, it's a way of of signaling a homecoming. It's also the way of, of signaling a new beginning. It says that from this moment on, when I... When I'm raised out of the waters, I'm going to adopt a new strategy for living. From this day forward, it's simply this. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to trust myself first and foremost. This is not just going to be about me anymore. I'm going to surrender. I'll submit. I'll bend the knee. I'll do what he's asked me to do and I'll trust him. I'll put my life and I'll put my future in his hands. Repent. People are cut to the heart when they hear Peter. What should we do? Repent. And then there's that next step. That next step that kind of functions like an illustration or a picture. A visible, tangible reminder of what's happened. Be baptized, every one of you. It's the gospel in motion. It is the dying and rising of Jesus. It is the dying and rising that happens in your own life. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized... That's the next step. It's a public way of expressing with your body the decision that you've made. And it's a visible thing that points to the the spiritual reality that you've experienced in your soul. You're buried with Christ through baptism, it says in Romans 6. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may have new life. And i got to tell you, Boy, I'm trying to find all four of our guys who are baptized. There's one. There's two. Alex, where are you? There's three. And Steve, there you are. The joy of getting it right. There's nothing like it, is there? Of having maybe gone down another road in your life and saying, no, God, I want to know you. I want all of that stuff to be cleaned out. I want to be forgiven. I I want to live in grace. I want to declare myself. I'm yours. I want my life to matter for all eternity. There's nothing like it. And to be part of a community that that gets to declare that and manifest it. It's 
It's worth changing your life for. There's nothing like it. And so if you've never done what Peter invited those folks to do, if you've never said, Spirit of God, cut me to the heart. Give me all the truth that I can stand. Clean me up. I want to be forgiven because of what Jesus did. Can I, can I encourage you? Don't, don't just drift. Don't just let it go. Don't just saunter out of here like it's any other Sunday. Some of you have been attending church for months, sometimes years. Maybe you've even said, I, I believe in God. But you've never allowed the Spirit of God to work in your life and push you to the point where you say, okay, there's no more messing around. I'm not sitting on the fence anymore. I'm declaring myself. And you make your declaration. And if you feel God somehow maybe tugging away at you saying, you know what? I think you should let the world know. And you ought, to, you ought to listen to the voice. People sometimes ask, do I have to be baptized in order to be saved? No, no. There's nothing magic about the water. It, if it were, we'd just send out the deacons to lasso people. We'd toss them in here and we'd get our work done. But there's nothing magic about that. But let me ask it this way. Why would you want to begin your spiritual life by not doing the one thing that Jesus asked you to do in his name? Don't skip that. It will be a remarkable, memorable moment in your life and it will be a powerful testimony in the lives of others. People will watch as you did today. They will clap as you did today. They will cheer. But maybe, just maybe there's something else going on. Maybe God's at work in your life. And if that's true, don't resist. I'm going to invite you to pray with me, all of you, if you'll bow your heads. Right now, allow this to be a moment between you and your God. You know that the Holy Spirit has lost none of his power. That he still breaks through sometimes in, in moments that we least expect it. He still pierces our defenses and cuts to the heart. And if he's doing that with you right now, then what Peter said all those centuries ago still applies you just repent. And if you've never said it before, you tell him now, God, I repent of my sins. Would you forgive me? I want to stop trying to lead my own life. I want to submit. I want to bend the knee. I want Jesus to be my friend, my guide, my savior. Begin a life today that will stretch out into all eternity. You can pray that right now. And if God is tugging you to be baptized, saying, I want you to have the courage to declare yourself. You tell him right now, you, you matter more to me than anything or anyone. This is just water. We'll fill this tank as often as we need to. Father, your spirit is here at work this morning. Would you cut us to the heart and then heal us? Help people who need to die to the past, leave it behind and bring them back to real life. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.